listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we clarify distinctions between Mormon and Credo-Christian thought. I'm Brendan, here with Skylar. And uh, it's a, it's a, it is a big day. It's just this is a, a big one. It is a big, big <sighs> day. I feel very inadequate. Yeah. Yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some of the listeners agree. Yeah. Well, I'm with you. We we we're uh, gonna try to cover Romans one to six today. Apparently, oh my goodness! And uh, just so you don't know, or if you don't know, to just uh, um, fill any uh, potential LDS listeners in on the fact that when evangelical Christians, particularly of the Reformed persuasion, as we are. When they preach through Romans, the norm is to take years to get through this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so no I can't remember. Uh, let me, I'm going to try to find it real quick. But um, Martin Lloyd Jones has a Romans commentary, 14 volumes. Uh, it took my, my, one of my favorite preachers to get through Romans, 14 volumes of Romans. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's why Skylar and I feel inadequate because a lot of people consider Romans to be one of the most important epistles, not to degrade any uh, other epistle, but just the way that Paul systematically lays out the Christian faith in more of a long form version in Romans. Um, I mean, a lot of people consider this to be, one of the more important epistles to know in order to understand the truth of the gospel that we proclaim. And so we, we tend to take Romans very seriously, which is part of the, uh, you know, butterflies in the stomach of trying to cover Romans one two six, right, right. which is half of Romans in one hour of time. So, uh, yeah, we're just not even going to scratch the surface of it truthfully, but hopefully we can hit on a few major points and be helpful to some degree. But, before we get to that, you know, maybe maybe a random question. Let's I don't do know. It. Something like that. So, question for the day. If you were any ice cream flavor, not what is your favorite ice cream, but if you were a ice cream flavor, what flavor would you be and what would your name be? That's kind of a difficult one. It is. I don't, even, um, I don't know what I'd say on see. that. Uh, you got to keep it light before we get into Romans. Exactly. You know? <laughs> it's like I'm trying to focus my brain. Yeah. <laughs> uh, peanut butter awesomeness. I don't know. Something like that. You'd be something dense. Yes. Peanut butter. More peanut butter. Yeah. Peanut butter's dense. Extra peanut butter. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. could be with chocolate or cookie, whatever, but peanut butter. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I'd be something probably pretty intense in flavor, too. I don't know though, you know. I, I I don't I don't I don't feel like I'm I'm much on the fruity side of things. No. So it'd probably be it'd probably be like chocolate peanut yeah. butter. Hey, we're great. But here. but it need be some like crunch in there too. Sure. Um. Even the peanut butter crunch. Yeah. You know cereal. Yeah. Yeah. I Why and not? I don't know what it would be called. That was a lame question. It, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Should we go back to ask you what I've been up to? Should we? What have you been up to this uh, week, Skylar? Reading, uh, yeah, <laughs> reading, walking, I don't know. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> I yeah, don't know what's happening. So, well, me neither. All right. Okay. Well. <laughs> Romans 1 through 6. It's funny. Th- th- this is the type of episode that's, you know, why we're doing this, right? Yeah, yeah it is. I, the, I don't know the, why I feel so unprepared. I've probably prepared as much for this episode as almost any, maybe times two throughout yeah, the year. Yeah. And I still feel unready well, to try to tackle, yeah. I don't know, all 26 LDS views. Yeah, yeah. Truthfully, <laughs> that's one of the hard things on on things like this is Romans is, I mean, it's not to say that there's not interpretive debates within Romans. There's plenty of interpretive debates even Mm -hmm. within evangelical Christian circles, but the fundamentals of the faith, I would say are are so clear in Romans um, that sometimes it's hard to deal with LDS views because they're trying to, you know, honestly work around those clear doctrinal statements in so many different ways. It's like, you know, chasing a bunch of rabbit overpopulated rabbits that are running away from the, <laughs> yeah. the uh, you know, the home. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. And, <laughs> you know, for all the Reformation era debates, yeah, none of them were dealing with a system where men, gods literally are men that exalted themselves by their own obedience, mm-hmm. like all gods before them. None of them were dealing with polytheistic systems, uh, based on eternally existing law, eternally existing matter. And every LDS interpretation that's, I don't know, trying to take their theology seriously is trying to fit any type of what grace language into a system in which if grace is emphasized at all, it's a given. Mm-hmm. It's an it's actually natural, not supernatural. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's something even within, let alone, you know, alien, uh, a gift of God without. So it's, I don't know. It's, um, it's been an interesting few days obsessing mm. on this. Yeah. Yep. No doubt. Well, I said we just jump on in. Let's hit it. Um, cause we do have a lot to cover and it's a short amount of time to cover it. So yeah, Romans one to six and the subtitle in the LDS come follow me curriculum for this this week is the power of God unto salvation. Yeah, weird. Yeah. That's a weird yep. title. Uh, so it starts with the typical top uh, part where it says, you know, prayerfully read through this with class members in mind. It'll help you be sensitive to the promptings of the spirit as you prepare to teach. And then under the invite sharing, it says, uh, consider giving class members a few minutes to search Romans 1 to 6 for a verse that the Holy Ghost helped them to better understand. Uh, and that's part of what we're talking about here, even at the beginning, is, you know, we, we feel so overwhelmed trying to cover six chapters here because what Paul is doing in Romans is he's making an argument. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a logical argument that has a flow to it. And so, you know, cherry-picking one verse that spoke to you, it just isn't going to do justice unless you're actually saying this is how this verse spoke to me within the context of the whole, mm-hmm. I guess. But, um, yeah, that's that's some of why we struggle to even begin to work through this and the amount of time that we have, especially when we're trying to compare it to LDS views as well. So we get into the Teach the Doctrine, and the first thing that they point to, or the first verse, is Romans 1, 16 and 17, and those are 
famous verses that probably most of our listeners will at least somewhat be familiar with, and that is this. Paul writes, this is out of the English Standard Version, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, I would say what Paul is beginning to do in those two verses is he's laying the groundwork for what he's about to argue in the next couple of chapters. Uh, he, he is talking about what has been revealed, that which was concealed, which has now been revealed um, in, in one sense. And, uh, and so he is, he is really going to ultimately show how righteousness has been revealed to the world outside of obedience and works of the law. Um, and, and what he means by that, of course, is righteousness has been revealed in the person and work of Jesus himself. Uh, so anyways, that, this is laying the foundation of what he's about to talk about through the rest of the, the book. But here's what we get in the subtitle of the LDS curriculum. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And then I'll just read this very quickly. It's a short section. Many people have had experiences in which they were ridiculed for their beliefs. To help class members, uh, when they have such experiences, you could invite them to read these verses and think of instances from the book of Acts, where Paul showed that he was not ashamed of the gospel. Perhaps class members could also share reasons they feel unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, or they could share experiences in which they or others showed that they we're not ashamed of the gospel. So, of course, how are we going to deal with these verses from a credo Christian perspective? Well, we're going to actually want to dissect the meaning. We're going to want to look at the words. We're going to think, what are these words saying? And fundamental to this, these uh, two verses is the question of what is the gospel mm-hmm. to begin with? And Paul's already begun to define what the gospel is in the first section of Romans. He says, uh, and I love the introduction to Romans because it's like Paul just comes in with a wrecking ball right off from the front. He says in Romans 1, starting in verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And then he gives a short definition of the gospel. Not complete, but uh, in, in the sense of you, you, there's more that could be said and filled in on what the gospel is, and Paul goes on to fill that in through the rest of Romans. But he gives a little shorthand here where he says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So Paul, I think, is starting off there saying, here's what it's going to be about. This book's going to be about the gospel. This book is going to be about uh, the, the, the right interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures, who Christ is in light of those Old Testament scriptures, the revelation of God to the world, uh, which has come in the person and work of Jesus. And Paul is going to articulate those truths about who Christ is and what he has accomplished. And so that is the gospel. The message of the gospel is what Jesus has objectively done, who Jesus objectively is, and how he ought to be understood according to the scriptures. And so when you begin to say, well, what what are some ways that you should not be ashamed of the gospel? Of course, we're going to say, you better make sure you got the right gospel first. And uh, as we have consistently hit on 
in this podcast, the LDS understanding of the gospel, well, go read the gospel principles manual, and you're going to find that the gospel is not a declaration of what Christ has done. The gospel and LDS understanding is a list of things that you must do. It's what you participate in. And that's not to say that our understanding of the gospel does not include elements of participation, but the participation is not the gospel. The gospel is what Christ has done, and we are transformed by placing our faith in him. And as we do, we begin to live a new life in in the faith that we have received. And so Paul is dealing with both of those things. He's dealing with the objective truths of the gospel, and he's dealing with the uh, the change that the gospel does and makes within the believer that we ought to live and walk in. But we got to be clear on what the gospel is. So you want to add anything to that before? Well, yeah, just to quote the manual um, really quickly for those who haven't heard it yet. Uh, remember, the Savior's atonement, yeah, it's necessary, but, um, you know, so is your work, yeah. right? The Savior's atonement makes it possible for us to overcome spiritual death, right? We accept Christ's atonement by placing our faith. Through this faith, we repent, are baptized, receive the Holy Ghost, and obey his commandments. This is a direct quote. Christ did his part to atone for our sins. To make his atonement fully effective in our lives, we must strive to obey him and repent of our sins. Um, And there's a parable in there. I'll link to it in the show notes by President Boyd K. Packer. But the illustration is there to show how Christ, quote, how Christ's atonement makes it possible to be saved from sin if we do our part, if we will keep his terms, which are to repent and keep his commandments. So the good news is Christ was perfect and um, you need to be too. Yeah. That, that's good news, right? Good news. Here's good news. Be perfect. Mm-hmm. There you go. Yeah. Yep. That's... that's right it's very relieving right and uh, you know just paul already is starting to like i said lay the groundwork in verse 17 saying for in it being the gospel the righteousness of god is revealed from Mm -hmm. faith for faith as is written the righteous shall live by faith so the fundamental question here is how does man receive the righteousness required to dwell in the presence of a holy and righteous god and what Paul is saying is that righteousness of God has been revealed from faith for faith. And ultimately what he is pointing to, as we'll see very clearly in chapter 3, is that that righteousness is revealed in Jesus Christ. Um, and so uh, it's, a, it's a righteousness outside of us, mm-hmm. not a righteousness that we develop within us in order mm-hmm. to earn the favor of God. Right. We're not the good news. Yeah. In fact, we're the bad news of yeah. the first part of Romans. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so then we skip through a whole bunch of stuff um, and get to the end of chapter two for the next subtitle, which I understand. Like, you know, they've got a 45-minute class. They can't cover six chapters yeah. in that amount of time. Um, but we get to uh, Romans 2, and they cite 28 and 29, which says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not for man, but from God. And the point there that we ought to get, according to the curriculum, is true discipleship is found in our inward commitment, not just in our actions. And then it says to do this exercise, replace the word Jew with Latter-day Saint, and the word circumcision with the covenant. 
um, again, that is just another example of how they read themselves right into the Bible rather than objectively trying to understand what the Bible says. Um, I don't know that I want to camp on that at all because the next section has a little bit more to cover. And then we, we're going to try to just give a general overview of LDS interpretation of Romans, at least Skyler is. Do you want to cover anything on this point, though? Well, I just, you know, that hopefully those who read and let the text speak will see that that is that is really not the point yeah. of emphasis. Yeah. If anything, um, it's, it is, um, yes, it is true that some of our wickedness is not yet revealed in what we do. But they flip it and make it more about, you know, being sincere in our discipleship as if, you know, that's, I guess, Paul's point is that, hey, just, you know, be more sincere. Mm -hmm. And then you'd be justified based on, you know, your inner righteousness, you know? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. To me, it was, yeah. Yeah. Not the point at all. Yep. That's right. Paul's trying to to paint a picture of of universally men falling short yes. of the glory of God. And then they cite Romans 3 all the way to Romans 6. So they cite four chapters here that you're supposed to go and, and read. And these four chapters, they sum up by saying, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Now, some of this is just worth reading. How can you help class members understand Paul's teachings about faith, works, and grace? Consider sharing the following two scenarios to help them understand that we should not see our good works as a way to prove our worthiness, nor should we see Christ's grace as a reason to excuse our mistakes and sins. Let me just read that again. Consider sharing the following two scenarios to help the class understand that we should not see our good works as a way to prove our worthiness. Nor should we seek Christ's grace as a reason to excuse our mistakes and sins. And then it says class members could go look at Romans 3, 20 to 31, 5, 1 to 2 to think this out. Now, I want to give you the scenarios, and then I just want to point out a contradiction, and then I want you to comment on it, whatever you want to say, Skylar. But uh, scenario one is a friend named Gloria feels overwhelmed in her efforts to be a faithful disciple. She works hard to do everything she feels she should do. But she often worries that her efforts fall short. Am I good enough, she wonders. Will the Lord accept me? So obviously, the answer that you're supposed to give is that the truths in Romans 3 to 6 give comfort to the person who is trying as hard as they can, grinding their knuckles to the ground or, or to the bone, and, uh, and they can have comfort that God is gracious because they are trying as hard as they can. Yeah. Um, and then the second one is a friend named Justin doesn't worry too much about making righteous choices. So here, here's the bad boy, right? Like <laughs> Gloria is the good, righteous LDS person. Right. Justin doesn't care that much about making righteous choices. He believes in Jesus Christ. He attends his church meetings, and he is a loving father and good neighbor. However... He has chosen not to live the standards that would qualify him for for a temple recommend. Yeah. When family and friends try to encourage him to prepare for the temple, he responds, I'm a good person. I have faith in Christ. He already paid the price for my sins. I don't think he's going to keep me out of the celestial kingdom over such minor issues. Okay, so let's take the example of Justin 
And then let's read aloud what they just now said. They said, yep. consider sharing the following two scenarios to help your class understand that we should not see our good works as a way to prove our worthiness. We should not see our good works as a way yeah. to prove our worthiness. But Justin has chosen to not live the standards that would qualify him for a temple recommend. Right, which would be what? Word of wisdom, sustaining the leaders, yeah, tithing. Yeah. Uh, uh, how about a whole bunch of good works? Yeah that determine whether or not in LDS people, you know, you use this phrase, whether or not you're temple worthy. Worthiness. So you prove your worthiness how? By what you do. By the works that you do. And regardless of what you believe. Yes. I mean, and you and I both know specific people who don't believe anything, but who will say what they need to say to continue going to BYU or even working there. That's right. Please, please, please just see the continued contradictions right yeah. there like like on in the same paragraphs right. i mean just please see them they're they're just abundantly obvious um and then they go on and they cite some additional resources that include some uchtdorf uh, uh quotations here that are pretty interesting yeah. but uh i don't know we just have so much else to cover that uh, make any comments you want to make yeah and then, just and the then let's move on a couple things we've covered some of these in the past just to bring it up the moroni 10 quote right where or moroni 10 verse that was also brought up as so poetic and beautiful by uh blake osler which um I don't know. It's not beautiful to those who actually believe what Paul says in these chapters. But, you know, if you rid yourself of all ungodliness, then his grace is sufficient. So if you just do that, only that, you know, (laughs) no sense of the holiness of God. I don't know if we've recommended R.C. Sproul's Holiness of God yet. But if you haven't read that book, sell your shirt, get that book, either on Audible or, uh, you know, a hard copy. Um, And similarly, the Uchtdorf quote, just right here, even the contradiction that you just pointed out is in this quote. We've covered this uh, talk before, but salvation cannot be bought with the currency of obedience. Once again, though, this is my comment, because in Mormonism, salvation is universal. So it's not, it cannot be bought, yeah, because you don't need to buy it. Mm-hmm. So they can emphasize grace there, but it's grace that's not supernatural, it's natural. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. Right? Does that make sense? Um, it is purchased by the blood of the Son of God, which, uh, okay, I'm not really sure what that means within their worldview. We've kind of covered maybe what we think of that. Um, grace is a gift of God, Uchtdorf says, and our desire to be obedient to each, not some, each of God's commandments is the reaching out of our mortal hand to receive this sacred gift from our Heavenly Father. That's right. See that? Boom. Notice, it's not fruit at all. It's how we receive grace. That's right. Is obeying each of the commandments. In a talk called the gift of grace, it's not a gift. Yeah. Hear that? It's not a gift. Yeah. You earn it. Yep. The irony is if we're going to use, just because you brought up the idea of fruit and the vine, in an LDS understanding, the fruit is the grace. And yep. the grace only comes when you are growing your vine the way that you ought to be growing your vine by the right. works that you are doing. Right. That's so exactly opposite to what the gospel is. Right. The and gospel is what Christ has done, mm-hmm. a trust in him as the one who has accomplished our salvation. And as we trust in him and rest in him, the fruit comes. 
but it comes by way of resting in him and him bringing about the fruit in our lives by the spirit, as we'll see when we get very clearly to uh, Romans eight. But uh, yeah, it's uh, just see it. It's right there. It's just, it's obviously in the teaching, a misunderstanding of what biblical grace is. Right. And, and notice too, if they think that Paul agrees with them and that, you know, we're going to go into what we have time for in terms of a few of the people who have tried to do just that, why do they all of a sudden just run to James? Mm-hmm. Notice, like, in scenario two, right, they have James two, And, of course, we see that as inspired scripture as well from another sacred apostle, in fact, the brother of our Lord. Um, but notice the, the anxiety over it. Yeah. The anxiety over these passages where they're like, yeah, don't think you can you know, earn salvation. Once again, playing the game, you don't need to earn salvation. Everyone is saved in Mormonism. There is no hell. I know a lot of LDS talk about the past leaders talking about, you know, the sphere of hell and their experience. By the way, that, that came from God. It didn't come from your religion. Mm-hmm. See that? It's yeah. not taught in your religion. The missionary, look at the missionary charts. Look at any of them. Where's hell? Yeah. They have an outer darkness that maybe not even Satan will go to. <laughs> the fear of hell actually came from God in spite of Mormonism. And that's, that's a real fear that should be had. Right, that that is the wrath of God being revealed, as Paul says here. Mm-hmm. But notice, in in this chapter, in which Paul literally t- contrasts in this epistle, right, a righteousness received by faith as a gift with a wage that is earned. Like literally, let me should I just read this? Yeah, here, we don't even need to interpret it. Let me nope. just read what Paul says, and then we'll talk about it. But just notice, this is the chapters they claim to cover. They don't cover this at all, and instead run to James 2, Moroni 10, and this quote in which your obedience, right, your desire to be obedient to each of the God's commandments is your reaching out and receiving that gift. Mm-hmm. Um, so, of course, you need the whole epistle, and that's going to be one of the criticisms by Richard Lloyd Anderson. He's yeah. going to claim we only focus on 20% of it or whatever. <laughs> Boy, <laughs> yeah, we got to well, read that. Yeah, we will too. read that. Yep. But how about this? What then? Remember the Jew-Gentile conflict. Um, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. Notice even their scenario where this guy's like, I'm a good person. They don't challenge that. They say you're not good enough because you don't live biblical commands no 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 not even those it's word of wisdom it's you know their stuff but none is righteous no not one no one understands no one seeks for god all have turned aside together they have become worthless no one does good not even one their throat is an open grave they use their tongues to deceive the venom of asps is under their lips their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. That's another thing, too. In Mormonism, you're working to get back somewhere yeah. where you used to have it, but just in a more exalted state. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. They twist that. We won't go into that. There'll be a bonus episode worth. Yeah. They'll literally say, if the law is not there, you can't sin. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, Paul's point is that 
all have sinned, whether it's the law within yeah. or all, all not made more explicit. In right. some sense. Mm-hmm. Yep. The, 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 the biblical view is that the, you know, the Torah, for example, it makes more explicit the law that already is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, of course, a creation of God, not something external to him that he's accountable to, um, which is also a difference. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. That's right. A gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by, what, desiring to obey every command? No, 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 by faith. Yep. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boastings? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. <laughs> we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's right. Why? Because of what God has done in Christ. Why? Because of the cross. And that's one thing you'll notice as we go through all these Mormon explanations. None of them are centered on the cross. Yeah. In fact, I, I, I read all of Richard Lloyd Anderson. There's not one explanation as to why the cross was even necessary. Mm-hmm. He, you would think it would have made more sense if Jesus just was like taken up into heaven before the death because he just needed to be you know, perfect and show us how to be perfect. Yeah. It's our yeah. own perfection that will exalt us. Um, okay, back to Paul. Or is God the God of Jews only? Notice this too. He roots this argument in monotheism. Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of God, of Gentiles also. Since God is one. Shema. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. He's going to cover that more later. But here's, here's listen to this. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Mm-hmm. And that distinction, by the way, is key to understanding James 2, right? Yeah. Um, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness or imputed even. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as a wage, as his due. Mm -hmm. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, justifies the wicked, Mm -hmm. (laughs) his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing, by the way, they don't believe David would be, right? They believe right. David, because of his sins, you know, will be, uh, what, a lower kingdom or whatever, mm-hmm. at least for this round of lives for the early Mormons out there. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. 
Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Covered with what? The righteousness of Christ. What he earned. Blessed is the man. And who is the man? Who is the man? This is also our plea with Rome. This is also our plea with the East. This is also our plea with charismatics that have forgotten the gospel or rejected it. Who is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin? It is this blessing then only for the circumcised and also for the uncircumcised. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And I mean, we could go on, obviously. Oh, yeah. But just, we haven't even, I mean, I, I guess I've made comments along the way. But yeah. my point is, is just just read it. Just hear what he's saying. How many His contrast is not just what David Ridges does, for example. Yeah. Which is, what this is, this is what Ridges does. He says that when Paul says law here, it's just the law of Moses. Now, you, you preach through Galatians. There mm-hmm. are times when that can mean that, yeah. right? But... No, that's not what's in mind. It's Abraham we're talking about, yeah. right? And this is before the law of Moses, but this is why this is what he does. Um, Paul, this is David Ridges. Paul has emphasized over and over in these verses that one cannot be saved by complying with the law of Moses, but rather must come unto Christ and comply with his laws and commandments in order to enter celestial glory. And that's how David Ridges defines justification. Yeah. It's just trading law for law. Different laws. It's the wrong law. How you are yeah. justified. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Remember, the law of Moses was a schoolmaster law to elevate the people to a level where they would be capable of living the higher laws given by the Savior, which lead to exaltation. That, that's David Ridges. Yeah. That's the good news. The good news is that an even more strict law is here, and you're going to have to follow it. Yeah, yeah. That's the good news. Jesus ramped that's it up. That's good news. Exactly. Good, good luck. Okay, so why don't you fill out some more of what an LDS understanding of justification would be? Um, because that really is fundamentally what we're talking about here is justification. And just so you know, in, in short, how a credo Christian would define justification. We would say that justification is a declaration of righteousness before God that comes by way of our forgiveness of all of our sins and a perfect crediting of righteousness to our account. Um, so that's that's what it means to be justified. It means to be declared righteous by God. Yeah. Uh, so I, both of us would say that this is legal imagery um, not to imply that there's no social dynamic dynamics here, but fundamentally no. this is talking about the guilt of man because we have sinned against a holy God. We stand before him guilty. He is our judge. How are we going to be declared righteous rather than declared guilty and therefore receive the just condemnation for our sins? That's fundamentally the question that's going on here. Um, every day, every person one day is going to stand before the judgment seat of God. And that's what Paul is so clearly articulating in Romans 1 to 3. He's saying that the, the, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men. And that wrath has been revealed in the here and now 
uh, a little bit differently for different people. There are some people where the wrath of God has been revealed and him giving them over to their sins. And this is what you see happening in chapter one. God is already pouring out his wrath on people who he is just giving them exactly what they want. And they're living in open sin and debauchery and their lives are miserable and they're disregarding God. Um, and a lot of people, of course, would refer to Paul probably talking about common Gentile ways of living at the time. And then God's wrath has has been revealed in a, in ways to other people who are having really good lives and even have the law and are even living their lives by the law to a to what they would perceive to be a greater extent than the Gentiles are. And so their lives look cleany, cleaner. They look squeakier. Now they're hypocrites because they're still breaking uh, the laws that they think are okay to break, apparently, right? That's where right. He, he gets at that in chapter 2. But, uh, but what he says about those people is just because your life is going peachy right now, that doesn't mean that God's wrath is not toward you. Exactly. It's being stored up exactly, and it's going to be poured out. And so the wrath of God has been revealed. How do we get into a position where we don't receive that wrath? Because what Paul is saying is everyone is an object of wrath. Everyone is an object of God's wrath. It's coming for us unless we can be declared righteous. And in order to be declared righteous, that wrath has to be poured out somewhere. And that's exactly what that word propitiation in chapter 3 means that you just now read. I'm trying to find exactly which verse that, that's in. 25. There you go. Um, yeah, so whom God put forward, talking about Jesus, as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation means literally wrath-bearing sacrifice. Uh, so, so God's wrath is poured out on Jesus instead of on us, and we receive the credit of his righteousness as if it was our own. This is what Paul is saying justification is in its very nature. Now, how, how do LDS people deal with this idea of justification? Well, I, and I'm trying to think of the order I want to go into it, but part of it doesn't make any sense without reemphasizing this what eternally existing law is in the Mormon worldview. But just really quick as a point of comparison, if you were to look at, and this is another great book, uh, The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross by Leon Morris, I think there's two full chapters on justification. But it goes through all the atonement imagery, what it meant, and how it's centered on the cross. Because, you know, Paul says, we preach Christ and him crucified. Whereas I'm, I'm looking at a gospel principle, LDS Gospel Principles Manual, there's no entry in the index, in the index for justification, for sanctification, or for salvation. Can you believe that? No. There's not even an index entry. Yeah. So if there's an LDS looking for, I don't know, let's see, what's our position on justification? Yeah. It's not even in their gospel principles manual. Yeah. Well, that, that, well that's it, because, you know, it's only what, like 15, 20%? <laughs> of, uh, of Romans, right? Yeah, we're going to get to that. I, I hope I leave enough time for it because I, I want to read some of Richard Lloyd Anderson. Yeah. For those who don't know, this is like their guy on Paul. Yeah. Uh, if you look at, you know, our Mormons Christians, you look at any of the generation of scholars, even John F. Hall, others, if they have issues or are talk, discussing Paul, they cite this guy. We have his book here. But Really quickly, the context, though, is, once again, this eternally existing law. And so it, it, if you look at um, 
Christofferson's talk, which we'll put in the show notes. We'll discuss a little more next time because he, he claims to cover sanctification as well. But it's called Justification and Sanctification uh, by Elder D. Todd Christofferson at the time, presidency of the 70, ensign June 2001. And, of course, when he how he frames justification and sanctification is based on eternally existing law and how to progress given the law of cause and effect and, and all of that. Um, let me read just this. He's, he's, I think he's an underrated um, LDS thinker, um, H. Verlin Anderson. He's in the Benson group. We brought him up quite a bit. Um, and I will say there, there's a fantastic recent book on Benson. And I, and I think my one complaint, and I would say this to the author, Matt Harris, is I think he gave H. H. Verlin Anderson short shrift as a Mormon thinker. Um, yes, it's true he was into the conspiracies and all that. But um, listen to this. I think this is super clear. This is in the with the heading, The Reign of Law in Its Relationship to the Use of Intelligence. Mm. Civilized man has learned that he lives in a universe governed by unchanging physical law. If he desires to accomplish any result whatsoever, he knows that he must discover and precisely obey those laws upon which the result depends. I think you can see where this is going. The reign of law in the physical world is not questioned by intelligent men. Scientists, as well as others, have proven over and over again the unvarying nature of the rules which govern changes relating to energy and matter, such as the laws of gravity, electricity, and thermodynamics. All reliable evidence proves the existence of immutable laws in the physical world, and nothing man has ever done or observed has disproved their existence. Therefore, there is general agreement on this matter among those who are informed. Logical minds also agree on the fact that the existence of law is indispensable to the use of intelligence. Christofferson does something similar here based on some passages in the Book of Mormon. Um, yet no one can work toward any goal unless he can foresee the results of his actions. Right From this, we must conclude that intelligent conduct is possible only in the presence of law. This is why when you talk gospel, they think higher law. Everything is a matter of law, cause and effect. If you want this result, you need to take these means to achieve that result. And that's their ritual, their ethics. Everything comes down to this. Um, so I, I'll put this in the show notes for those who you know, want to read this whole thing. But you can see pretty quickly they have an issue with grace right off the bat because the idea of, of forgiving someone who doesn't deserve it, for example, mm -hmm. like what I don't know what Paul says. <laughs> justifies the ungodly, of course, which Joseph Smith changed to not justifies the ungodly. They have an issue with that because the idea is, I mean, laws are a third thing. It's a tertium quid. It's a, it's not something God created. It's something he himself is subject to. Yeah. And for him to be unjust or unfair yeah. and violate those laws, he would cease to be God. Yeah. So that's why atonement, it can be, it can be uh, something to buy, give you time, give you enough, what, um, a buffer. But yeah. in the end, it's, it's, a, it's a mean. It can never be the end in itself. It always has to be, be a means. Yeah. And, yeah, if that makes sense. Well, and, and just to quickly contrast that to a, a credo-Christian understanding of the law, for us, the law is the expression of the righteousness of God. So God is uh, the source of all moral good. And mm -hmm. the law is an expression of his holiness. Yes. It's an expression of his 
righteousness. And so the law is a result of God. It's not something that exists outside of him that he is under and subject to. Right. It's something that he gives to his creation to understand really how they ought to live in order to flourish as his created beings. And the problem is his creation being fallen as it is cannot live up to his law. And that's the point that Paul's making in Romans. Absolutely. Which is why he roots it in the oneness of God. Yeah. That's where he's rooting the argument, not in some abstract notion of justice that yeah. both us and God are subject to. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the, Cornelius Van Til is so good on this in his thinking. This is where I just, there's like a CVT music or something that you need. Um, because he he sees, okay, you, you have the ontological trinity, the creator-creation distinction, and he is fiercely consistent yeah. with that all along the way. And that's why he he's always trying to avoid the tertium quid, that third thing that we smuggle into the equation, that we somehow belittle God's majesty and holiness in imagining him subject to. Mm-hmm. This, this is why we can miss, especially coming from an LDS background, and honestly, it took this sermon by D.A. Carson where he was calling out some of this stuff for it to really punch through to me. Mm. D.A. Carson, he gives a sermon on... Chapter 3, 21 through 25, calls it the center of the Bible. And then I also listened to some other lectures on Romans by him, yeah. interacting with the new perspective, which we will get to um, at some point. Um, but he, he says, uh, the reason we um, w- will miss this is in our legal system, especially here in the West, right? The law is kind of an impersonal standard that a judge impartially adjudicates between the parties, right? Or and that's that's the ideal. And it gets away from the fact that for Paul, in talking about God's law, God is always, he is the judge, but he's also always the most injured party. <laughs> like, it, I mean, in our system, if the judge is the injured party, he couldn't be the injured party, right? He would want to recuse himself and all this stuff, right? <laughs> But that's not what that's not the legal system Paul is using to teach this point. God is the most injured party. Every sin, yes, we sin against other people, but God is the most. I mean, that's what you see in Psalm 51, right? Against you and you only have I sinned and done what you, what is wicked in your sight. I'm, I'm going off of memory here. Yeah. David, right? Yeah. It, it, are, it, is David denying that he sinned against Bathsheba and you're right? No, it, it's just we'd miss this and instead we see it as oh we violated this impersonal justice which i guess god to be a good judge based on our modern individualistic typically western legal standards has to enforce i mean sorry i mean he may not want to but you know he's got the rules are the rules right <laughs> um that no there's not a th- third thing that we've made this point with eternity uh we tend to do this with time Eternity is not time that God and himself and we are both subject to. Eternity is an attribute of him. Time is his creation. We're subject to it. And him and his mercy and grace in the person Jesus subjected himself to it, not changing himself, right, to provide for his people. Yeah. So now that's that. without that, you're going to miss... Justification. So in their manual, just to point this out, this is going to sound like us, but it's not, and it's not like 
these others that I could mention. But in, in the manual, it says justification. It refers to the remission or pardoning of sin. When we are justified, we are forgiven, declared guiltless, and freed from eternal punishment for our sins. So that's a little weird, but if you look at the citations, it cites this talk by Christofferson, which will be in the show notes, where, no, this is a different context. So they're trying to make these puzzle pieces fit. Yeah. I mean, and it, they, it, when, they you, can't. when you read that, it's, it is consistent with their way of thinking because they, they, where they differ is they say declared guiltless, not declared righteous. So yeah. for them, <laughs> yeah. you know, justification is being zeroed out. Yeah. And then you gain positive righteousness leading up to your exaltation. Yep. Whereas for us, we would say Paul's whole point in Romans is the hope of future glory is rooted in justifi- the justifying work of Jesus, right. not not in our even faithfulness and sanctification. We, we would see the sanctification, of course, being the outworking of being filled with the Spirit, but fundamentally what one our glorification on the last day where we will be brought into Christ's presence where we'll dwell with him forever is the the objective work of Jesus and dying for our sins taking our guilt upon him so that we can be guiltless but not only that yep also crediting righteousness to us exactly. and that's Paul's whole point that's is it. where do you get the righteousness it's right. not enough to just be zeroed out mm-hmm. where do you get the positive uh crediting of righteousness yep you know, and this ties into even some of uh, some of this may even be surprising to evangelicals to think about it this way. G.K. Beale makes a lot of these points in his book. I think it's in Union with the Resurrected Christ. It could be in, in his Colossians commentary. But he makes the, the point that when Adam was created, there was an expectation that Adam would be obedient to God and walk in his law and in, in his commandments and would therefore, in a sense, progress not progress to deity, but progress within his humanity. Uh, So he would credit by his obedience a sort of positive righteousness. And that positive righteousness was necessary to, uh, to God's purposes for man. But because of sin, we, we got no hope at not only being guiltless, but also of having a positive righteousness. And so when Jesus comes through his active and passive obedience, he fulfills both. He he does he is the second Adam, which is what Paul is talking about in, in Romans chapter five. He is the second Adam who comes and perfectly does everything that Adam failed in. Uh, he 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 becomes our representative head. So in the same way that we all, because we're united to Adam, are dead in sin, any who are united to Christ share in in his representation for us. And in his representation, of course, he was the perfect righteous one. He was the the true man who did all things according to God's law and the way that they should have been done. And therefore, of course, earned the favor of God and the right to be raised from the dead and, and glorified. And so in him, we have the hope of eternal life. In him, we have the hope of our sin problems being finally and forever dealt with when we are raised from the dead and are brought up in, into heaven with him as well, um, which you know we could, we could get into a lot of things there. But the point is, 
it's not enough to just be guiltless. And like what they're saying there, you also need right. a positive righteousness need, as right, a man. The will avail. And Jesus <laughs> is that righteousness, and that right. righteousness is counted as if it's our own by faith, right? by trusting in him, right. by being united to him. And, and, this, and that's it. And this will tie into the chapters for next week. But this is why Paul could say, who can separate us from the love of God? Yep. If Christ justifies, right? If God, God is the one who justifies, who, like, who's going to charge you? Yeah. Yep. Because of all of who God is. See, they want really, really badly right now to either go one of two ways away from the what I think is the more faithful to Mormonism approach of Richard Lloyd Anderson, which we'll get to. Mm-hmm. But you've got the Blake Osler route, which will take the new perspective on Paul, making it more of a covenantal commitment. You obey to stay in kind of stuff. Take, you know, that route and try to say, see, justification, yeah, it's a gift because, you know, it's a gift to get in, but you obey to stay in, right? And, yeah. you know, that's why Calvin and Luther are idiots or whatever. Uh, Blake Osler won't use that word, but that's basically what it means. Then you have this other route, right? Which is say, yeah, it's 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 grace, it's grace, it's grace, but it's once again masking that in this system, what is the scandal of the cross at all anyway, right? Mm-hmm. It's it, 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 what it does is it belittles the holiness of God. There's not a wrath to come anyway, yeah, and yeah. therefore it's just you know God's nice. Let's be nice. It'll right. work out. If you're trying, he'll overlook the little things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just I'll briefly mention. I, I found a podcast that I listened to of a guy who he's a he's a visiting professor in the religion department at BYU. Teaches institute classes. It seems like on the East Coast. His, his name is uh, Nathan Polly. and uh, I listened to a podcast. He's got a Come Follow Me podcast where he's he's doing the sort of things we are, except he's just taking the text that is going to be studied in the come following curriculum and dissecting it. And it, it was, is a fascinating podcast to listen to because one of the things we're noticing is this sort of evangelical take on yeah. Mormon doctrine. And as you listen to him explain Romans one to six on the surface, there is, there is almost nothing that I caught that I would disagree with. And that's what's so striking is he's here and and he defined justification as a declaration of righteousness. Yeah. And so he's yeah. he is clearly departing from the traditional LDS way of understanding these things. Right. But he still doesn't account for the sin of man. No. He still doesn't account for the guilt that is stacked up. Uh, the the wrath that yeah. is facing toward us the shame because, the yeah. shame because of our sin against the holy god um it's just has turned into this like when you do feel bad just remember there's grace sort of a thing uh versus really dealing with the weight of our sin the weight right. of our iniquity whether we're the ones who think we're righteous like romans 2 or whether we are the ones who are just living in licentiousness right either way god's wrath is towards you do you know the weight of that guilt? You know, that that's the power of Romans 3 and, uh, what is it, verse 20. Every, every no, it's 21. No, it is 20. <laughs> Struggle here. No, <laughs> 19. Here we go. Where, where Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Why? So that every mouth may be stopped. stopped. So the point of the law is to, is to is to literally shut you up. It, it right. like it makes you realize 
just how wicked you are, yep. just how sinful you are, just how filthy and unclean you are right. before a holy and righteous God. And that's something that I don't see in, in any of even the newer so-called soft reformation, more evangelical interpretations no. of uh, LDS thinking. There still tends to be this, we are good innately as human beings. We're all going to heaven. But when we feel bad, there's kind of some grace there for us to cling yeah. to. That's not a that's not you coming to a true confrontation of the true God. The holiness of the God. The holy God. The oneness of God. Right. It's they, they don't have the bad news. And so what they are doing, and um, I don't know how to say this in a nice way. I don't mean it in a mean way, but it's like uh, you're given a gift of, you know, some toy that you didn't even need. Mm-hmm. And you're like, see, this is a gift. Grace. See, we believe in grace. It's really, isn't that cool? See, we believe in grace. It's like, yeah, but you, you don't even need it. Like, yeah. I don't even like boats or yep. something. You yep. know? And it's like, no, no, no. You need the bad news for the gospel to be a surprise. That's right. If, if you're not, if there is no scandal to the cross, you're not dealing with this kind of theology. Yeah. Right, which is what, and once again, they none of them focus on it. Notice their story doesn't start with the fall of man, original sin, right? Our depraved state. No, 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 no. They start with eternally existing laws. Yeah, that's where their story starts. Yep. And well, God's really nice, but He can't violate law, so I guess He could. But He's found a way using eternally existing laws to give you time, and mm. you know, so that you can try extra hard, yep. and hopefully vindicate yourself. Yeah, yeah. And and that's. You know, and so yeah. When I listen to that podcast, it, it's it's just so funny. He he really wants to emphasize we LDS believe in grace. It's like you you realize even that anxiety shows you don't really your community mm-hmm. doesn't really believe it, and they probably don't because they, they don't teach it. Yeah. And in fact, those who are consistent don't believe it. Yeah. Blake Osler says we Protestants get everything wrong. And by the way, it's not just Protestants. Read Augustine. Yeah. I mean, come on. This is not right. <laughs> read Epistle to Diognetus. Yeah. Read read Paul. Yep. I mean, if, if you say nothing can separate us from the love of God, you're like, won't well, me and my agency and my will? No. If you read all these commentary in Romans, which I'm just assuming here, I haven't gone through yet, but it all assumes you can do it, right? All assumes you can do it. And grace is, you know, what motive? Grace is saying, oh, thanks. I guess that will fuel me to continue trying until I'm perfect. Yeah. And so, yeah, to, to finally get to your, to your answer, right. The way Christofferson defines it, right. Justification is removing punishment for past sin, only past sin, not yep. future. Once again, uh, I think Osler would agree with that in, in the sense of justification. Yeah. It's a gift because, you know, you didn't earn getting into the community, but you know, you got to obey to stay in, um, he calls it a process of justification. So it is remission or pardoning of sins. But once again, it's in the context of, you know, grace being received as the believer as they do these things, enter into specific covenants and follow eternally existing law on the path of happiness, which requires righteousness. At what point in an LDS understanding are you justified? You know, like, right. I, I guess that's what I wonder, because when I hear that kind of thing, it's for past sins. What does that mean? Like past starting when? Well, they they do think baptism, uh, and and I, they they, they cover baptism okay. when, uh, for Romans six. So sins that happen prior to your baptism, right? Essentially, right. Gotcha. Yeah. So that's that's what they'll do uh, with that. So, but that's not how they deal. I mean, it, that's inconsistent with their theology of universal atonement. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> and their view of children, which is another Romans issue that we just don't have time to get into. Yeah. Because they, they use that, you know, with no law, there is no sin. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, their denial of the imputed unrighteousness of Adam uh, as well to say, you know, children are sinless yeah. And, yeah. and make fun of, especially us Presbyterians yeah. on that. Yeah. But, um, so, yeah. Do you it, want to just read a portion from the leading LDS scholar on Paul yes. as to why uh, he says that evangelicals shouldn't focus so much on this justified by um, by grace alone through yes. faith alone thing? Absolutely. So Richard Lloyd Anderson understanding Paul. We're going to be dealing with him on every Pauline epistle just because he at least is dealing with these more explicitly. Um now, once again, he starts his story with this. God does not create and dictate. He organizes and delegates. God, I would just say, to be more consistent, you should say gods, plural, but formed the earth and its opportunities. Okay, so that's where the story starts. Yeah. <laughs> so once again, there's a theme here. <laughs> it doesn't start in Genesis 3 or well, it, Genesis 1 and then Genesis 3. So um, this is these are some lines with him, right? Accepting Christ's atonement brings forgiveness, but obtaining exaltation requires continued good works. Now, that's just to get here. I just have to set up because he he's really he and Blake Osler really don't like our position, right? And just think Calvin Luther, Augustine are a bunch of idiots. He says this: some simplistically think that justification will come through Christ's atonement and condemnation by works or deeds, right? They ask, how can men be saved if works count, but works fall short? But it is not up to theologians to say what is impossible with God, for the scriptures clearly teach forgiveness through the atonement and the believer's responsibility in works. So that's how he sets up for this, which is um, justification by faith. He has a whole section. And um, he says that salvation for Paul is not merely resurrection, but exaltation with God in eternity. The justification is quite simply forgiveness of sins through Christ. That law usually means the Mosaic law. He does that. The remaining word of difficulty, and this is where, you know, we got to, we're trying, especially to say with the podcast you sent me, right? Okay, we got to wrangle. What do you mean by faith? And for, for Richard Lloyd Anderson, this is where the rebel be. Justification, it doesn't, it seems like, oh, close. Yeah. Manual, even closer. No, no, no. Grace. This is where it's going to be. Is it a gift? This is, uh, he says, which has become a theological abstraction because it is not used in everyday speech. Okay. So he says, grace relates to the core principle of love, God's kindness in leading his children back to him. God's favor in sending his dear son to atone for their sins. God's grace is not spiritual substance. It is his spiritual generosity. Once again, you today, okay, that's close, right? But this is it. Thus, and then he he brings up the Protestant Reformation and says, any discussion of justifying grace is really the question of whether it brings salvation by itself. We agree. Such a doctrine arose, and this is how he characterizes Luther, as an extreme reaction to extreme religious practices. Right? So <laughs> he, he definitely caricatures Luther there. But to move on, Righteous parents, because, you know, that's the parallel to Mm. God, right? Righteous parents know the tension between love and rules. Yeah. But does our Heavenly Father, or sorry, Heavenly Parent, I would say parents, right, plural, require merely the acceptance of his love? 
what is the difference between salvation by grace alone and salvation by grace? And this is where he's going to rest. He'll, be, he'll say, LDS can believe salvation by grace, just not grace alone. Yep. you got to fit us in there somewhere. In the one case, God's grace operates to save mankind through faith by itself. Uh, one case? How about Paul's case? <laughs> in the other case, God's grace operates to rescue them as they show their faith by their own serious efforts. Truckloads of tracts have been distributed to LDS in an attempt to prove that the latter view is wrong. Now, there's plenty of people here at this church guilty of that, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> these, these are composed with tunnel vision because they have a narrow range of quotations using little else than Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians. Indeed. Shame. Yeah, yeah. How, how dare, dare we? How dare we? How dare you know, use Romans, what? Galatians, and Ephesians? <laughs> well, it's like Christofferson, you know, what does he quote? In uh, his talk, you know, yeah. it's just Book of Mormon stuff. Okay. Well, that and the, the Talmud. Yeah. Oh. Anyway. Yep. Yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> um, uh, indeed, Luther said that these three books with First Peter, John's Gospel, and First John would teach everything you need to know for your salvation. To jump ahead. Thus, oversimplification goes beyond a Bible sufficient for salvation to only six books of the Bible as sufficient for salvation. But is 20% of the New Testament the scripture God wants men to read? And okay. is grace... Can you read that again? Yes. yes. <laughs> is 20% of the New Testament the scripture God wants men to read? Listen, we just need to cut that 20% out. I guess. That's, what, that's what he's saying. Like, <laughs> Yeah, as if the other 80% agrees with polytheism, yeah, yeah, eternally yeah. existing law, all the stuff that we've emphasized all year. And is grace alone the intended gospel of Christ? He cites William Temple, who a name I wouldn't have known had I not inherited mm-hmm. books from my Episcopal grandfather. But uh, this is this is the bad example, of course, for him. This William Temple said, "The only thing of my very own which I can contribute to my redemption is the sin from which I need to be redeemed." Amen. Amen. We absolutely agree with that. This is how he's going to respond. Romans 3 through Romans 5 powerfully support forgiveness through grace and faith, but these three chapters are only 20% of the teaching portion of Romans. So just disregard it. Disregard it, I guess. Yeah, Yeah, it's only 20%. Here comes some LDS math right here. Get ready for it. (laughs) The value of, yeah, I know. It's like that that could have been the name of the podcast. Yeah. The 20%. Yeah. In which we would cover 100% of what the Bible teaches. But anyway, the value of good works is only suggested there. But the necessity of baptism and righteous works afterward is discussed in Romans 6, Romans 8, and the Christian commandments reached through Romans 12 uh, beyond Romans 14. Thus, the 20% on grace is matched by over 30% on works. Mm. In this perspective, Protestant theology is not so much wrong as half right, akin to taking the oxygen out of the basic formula for water and requires two parts of hydrogen and one part. And by the way, listeners, I know I probably shouldn't be reading this much, but you got to hear this. Yeah. This is this is their guy on yeah. Paul, Yeah. right? So he... Um, this is how he closes this section, but then I want to focus on where he gets into the LDS view. Romans' early chapters on grace must not obscure the closing chapters of Christian commands. We establish the raw the law. Romans three thirty one is the bridge between these two principles. Once again, it's not Paul's bridge, right? That it's his bridge to try to hold together some sense of um, 
need, I guess, for grace yeah. within the Mormon system that can't allow for it. Yep, yep. And and this was the guy, if I if I remember right, because you sent me a couple of pictures. Who in the very introduction of the book, he basically is saying, "I started this book, yep. you know, thinking that I was going to be studying Paul and writing on Paul." And as I studied, basically, I came to realize how amazing our additional revelation is to give insight into what Paul is actually saying, because there just wasn't enough there. So, you know, I I mean, LDS scholarship of the Bible really is basically pick and choose what you want that reaffirms our worldview and do away with like the 20, 30% in this book or that book that we would just figure don't work. Right. You know, that, that really, uh, that's exactly what he's saying there. Yep. Um, is focus on the 30%. I mean, what do you do with Ephesians? Cause there it's 50, 50 split. You got three sure. chapters of the indicatives and then three chapters of the, uh, imperatives. So, right. And it's just the, the, the law gospel distinction, whether old or new Testament, right. is just completely absent. Yeah. You know, even the 10 commandments, right. Well, you could say verse two is only one verse, yep. but it's the foundation for the commandments. Yeah. And there's a huge difference between I love you and have redeemed you. Yep. Live this. Yep. That's right. And live this and maybe I'll love you and exalt you. Yeah. If you earn it because I can't violate eternally existing laws. Sorry, my hands are tied. Yep. So what, what we're really accusing the LDS faith of is the straight legalism that you know, I would say that Paul is is abjectly condemning in these different books. And uh, I just want to read a little bit here from Tom Schreiner. This is him commenting on, on chapter four. It's from his book, 40 Questions About Christians and Biblical Law, which is a great book to pick up. But he says, according to Paul, Abraham could legitimately boast if he did the necessary works. Nevertheless, Abraham had no grounds for boasting in God's sight, for he was ungodly. Look at Romans 4, 2 to 5. He belonged to idolaters when the Lord called him to follow him. You see that in Joshua 24, 2 to 3. Abraham was justified, as Genesis 15, 6 attests, by believing rather than doing. So he's justified by his belief, not by his doing. Romans 4, 4 to 5 further explicates, words are hard, Romans 4, 2 to 3. Verse 4 is particularly important. Now, to the one who works, and you pointed this out when you just read it, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. This statement virtually captures the essence of legalism, at least according to my definition, Schreiner says. Paul uses the illustration of an employee. If the employee fulfills his contract and does the work required, then he deserves wages. That's legalism that Paul's condemning. He has merited the pay. And hence, he does not view his paycheck as a gift of grace. But justification is not attained on that basis. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. No one gains justification by working for God, for all are ungodly. This is Paul's point. Righteousness is obtained by believing instead of doing. Some scholars downplay the content of Romans 4.4, but it is quite prominent in the argument. For Paul takes pains to demonstrate that no one is justified by virtue of what he or she does. That's exactly what Paul's trying to say. He is condemning the LDS worldview. He is. Yeah. Outright. Yeah. 
and going along with that LDS worldview, let me bring in Joseph Smith a little bit. Yeah. Because Richard Lloyd Anderson does. Um, this is Richard Lloyd Anderson. The Ital- uh, Let's see this. Joseph Smith taught that forgiveness, justification, came through Christ alone, but that retaining this marvelous blessing was dependent on the actions of men and women. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and his change to Romans 4.16 is, therefore, ye are justified of faith and works. He added that through grace. And once again, you can't emphasize this enough. You want to see the difference between the worldviews? Paul says there, God justifies the ungodly, the people who absolutely don't deserve it, right? Yep. The church is a hospital for the sick. Joseph Smith changes that. And and this is interesting. I actually didn't catch this pattern because, um, in, in fact, I misstated this in an earlier episode, but I corrected it in the show notes. Uh, the Joseph Smith translation uh, quote-unquote corrects Romans 118 times uh, from the KJV equivalents, mm-hmm. right? And there's a pattern here, uh, Richard Lloyd Anderson. Uh, the Joseph Smith translation generally keeps Paul's failures with the law in the past tense. For Joseph Smith, Paul expressed the inability to keep Jewish law prior to conversion, mm-hmm. which shows what? He could after. That's a little different than Philippians. Uh, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and here it is. What about this is this. Too many see Christ's atonement in static terms at this point. Right? The free gift point. The gift is given bringing the joy of gratitude, but what about the responsibilities of gratitude? I got to fit our works in somewhere. Does one ever receive a gift without moral obligation? Does the Christian remain the polite child expressing verbal thanks only, or does he develop the maturity to show gratitude in action? The issue is whether God considers salvation complete when the grace of forgiveness comes into the human soul, or whether that is the starting point. Preachers of the decision for Christ make salvation a choice of a moment. It's like, once again, straw man of our position. But all of Paul's letters explain a process of perfecting oneself through Christ after forgiveness. Grace for Paul was justification plus motivation. Remember that. Next time, like this gentleman, I'm like, okay, here's your Paul scholar. Yeah. Here's your general authorities. Here's Joseph Smith. Here's Bruce R. McConkie's definition. But this is it. Grace for the LDS church. At, where, even if they try to bring up the word, right? It's justification plus motivation. And listen to this. After diligently preaching and courageously facing persecution, Paul took credit for his sacrifices in 2 Corinthians 11. Ugh. For Paul, the first stage of salvation was realizing and receiving the precious gift of a relationship with God through Christ. That is too often held out as the end. I think Paul does that in Romans 8. Mm-hmm. It is the end. So that church meetings are places for rejoicing of the believers. That That's a negative. Yeah. So, so, so church meetings are places for rejoicing of the believers. But for Paul, the relationship with God was the beginning of the second stage of progression through service. So you have justification with motivation as the first rung of what he calls the ladder of salvation. I'm not making this up. Yeah. The ladder of salvation. And the second rung is progression through right. service. So you're, It sounds you're, like the yeah, LDS temple. Justification for him is you're guiltless. And then the second stage is necessary that you would attain the righteousness required. Yep. Just a few more quotes. Just let this sink in. Yep. This is at the at his life's end, Paul looked back as a driving runner to say, I have finished my course. 
This completed his autobiography of grace, which was linked to his most intense efforts. This illustration of what grace meant to Paul must fit his doctrine in Romans. There, he does not teach that grace replaces effort for salvation. That's interesting. That's literally what Paul does in Romans 4. Yeah. I mentioned the ladder of salvation. All these sources start with faith and show that it must be tested to be accepted by God. Paul's first rung on the ladder is being justified by faith, which is the condition of this grace where we stand. But that commitment leads to right this process he talks about. This is his conclusion. Thus, the final reward of tested faith is a character worthy of sure hope in the love of God. What was that gentleman's name you sent me? Oh, Polly. Yeah. I want to see him interact with this. Nathan Polly. Yeah. 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 I mean, I don't know him, but I mean, he really wanted to emphasize grace is grace and that's that. No, 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 no. Didn't you hear about the progression ladder? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thus, Richard Lloyd Anderson continues, Romans establishes a progression for the full favor of God. Yeah. Remember Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been freely justified, we have what? Peace. Yeah, which, which again implies that we had enmity, that we were hostile, yes. that we were under his wrath, children right. of wrath, as he would put it in Ephesians. Right. But those, those just aren't concepts that they they would even affirm, right? We, right. We're, we're just children who've gone a little bit astray, and we need to come back to our Father. And justification removes the guilt so that then we can earn the righteousness required to reach exaltation, right. which is done by our obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Right. And it's like... Which it, we were like, that's not the gospel. It, in, in 5.1, it says, therefore, yeah. since we have been yeah. justified. He doesn't... No, no, Paul, didn't you mean now that we've started the path of progression, you obey and show your covenant loyalty so God can, without violating justice, you know, you can mutually glorify each other. That's what Billy Gosser says. Yeah. Mutually glorify each other. No. Continue on with Richard Lloyd Anderson. This is his ladder, right? First, grace and justification through faith, followed by trials, followed by endurance, followed by a tested character. It is fiction to say that people go through such processes without using their total resolve, resources, and powers of decision. Mm-hmm. As real Gethsemanes come, by the way, he mentions Gethsemane, not the cross, only prayer and inspiration from God will bring the, the victory. Yeah. Only gratitude to the atoning Lord what did he atone for? But anyway, can give meaning to the constant struggle. The Book of Mormon teaches that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. Mm-hmm. It is also true that God's offer of grace through Christ is incomplete until men and women grow by acting on it. That doesn't sound like therefore having peace with God. No, no, no. It sounds like now the war began. That's, that's the Mormon view. That's Paul's right. chain of progression means that the rich gift is of no benefit without Every believer's total diligence in making use of it. Thus, both faith and works are required for full salvation. And this is the last sentence. Salvation by grace could more clearly be entitled called by grace. That's what he means by salvation by grace. Called by grace. For the reward is dependent on a righteous life motivated by love for Christ. Yeah. So... Where's peace with God? There. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, 
It's it's sad. Yep. I mean, it's honestly to take the very passage that would free the LDS and turn it into a logical reasoning based on eternally existing law as to why you need to try harder. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, there are very few things I can think of that are more blasphemous. Yeah. Uh, there's no other way to put it. Yeah. And I, th- I think what's at the root of this that is, I think, the hope that LDS people need to hear is that what we are talking about here is an absolute assurance of salvation on the last day mm-hmm. um, that, that you don't strive uh, to earn this righteousness. Um, your righteousness is in Christ. And so from the day that you believe uh, you can have confidence that God is going to deliver your body from death and that you're going to be raised to new life and that you will be with Christ and that you will never have to deal with pain or sorrow or sin again. Uh, we, we believe in a God who can eradicate evil and who will. Um, and Jesus' resurrection from the grave is the first fruits of that. He, he is the firstborn from the dead. He has risen from the dead. And it's in him that we have hope for eternal life. And, you know, the whole game in LDSism is striving for this future exaltation that you never know if you're going to actually reach. And what we're saying is you don't have to. That's why there's rest in Christ, because Christ has earned all that's required. Now, an LDS view of exaltation is wrong, according to what heaven's going to be like. Um, Heaven's going to be better (laughs) than uh, an LDS view of exaltation, because it's going to be centered on uh, the Christ who who made you, and you're going to be so fulfilled in worshiping Him that that uh, you're going to forget about all those selfish desires for family or or whatever it is that you had. But the the point is, there's there's actual rest, there's assurance, there's peace, there's a future hope. Um, and and that when when you believe that, you don't start to live a sinful lifestyle. And that's why Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound by no means? So there's not an evangelical Christian out there who understands the truth, who is telling you that our understanding of justification means that you can live however you want because you're saved anyway. Um, right? That's the scenario that they try to give, which I think is a caricature of our view in scenario two with Justin. He thinks, well, God's gracious, so I'm good. I can do whatever I want. And no, we would not affirm that whatsoever. We would say that the moment you believe, you're, you believe because the Spirit has indwelled you and the Spirit begins to work in you to make you more like Jesus um, for the rest of your life. And Paul does start to move in that direction at the end of Romans. What does the life of one who's been filled with the Spirit look like? The irony of even what um, the, the, that author said there uh, is that He says our future works can't be controlled by God. They have to be done by our free agency. Well, that's the exact opposite of what Paul says in Romans. He says we're controlled by the Spirit if we're in Christ. Um, And so what we're saying is the gospel is a power unto salvation. It's a power that saves. And the gospel is what Christ has accomplished that we believe in. And when we we believe, uh, God uh, begins a work in us that he completes. Right. 
And and uh, my pastor Jason, um, he likes to say that, you know, Christians fall into the mud, but they don't live there. Yeah. So we we have there is a tension in the, there is a sense in which there is a war, but it's not with God. Yeah. And that's the problem. And and you rightly emphasize that they don't have that to begin with. Yeah. When we are justified, we then are more recognizing of the sin in us. I, I speak from experience there. And I hate it. Yeah. And there is a real war there. Yeah. But it's with a sin that I know God will ultimately destroy. Yeah. And I would just challenge LDS listeners, go and read Romans 2 um, and realize that even if your life seems like it's so great right now, and, and you're being righteous and you think that you're doing good. You know that there's holes and there's hypocrisy, but you think ultimately you are crediting righteousness by your own works. Just realize that what Paul is saying is uh, God is storing up his wrath for you, yeah. and it will be poured out on you. Mm-hmm. And and it, it does appear that he is saying that it's going to be worse for you than even for those who in Romans one, he's pouring it out on them right now. And, you know, I I say that because I see so many LDS people who it's a prosperity gospel. I mean, they're they're living the good life. They're rich. They're wealthy. They've got everything. They've been very blessed. They've been blessed. So they think, and, uh, Paul is, is that's, that's exactly the kind of people I think Paul is addressing in Romans too. Absolutely. Um, just because you feel like you're blessed, doesn't mean that God's wrath isn't turned towards you. Right. It's just being stored up in his storehouse, and it, it will be unleashed on you at the day of judgment if you are not hoping in Christ and in Christ alone yeah. and uh, and killing your idols yep. and running after the one true God. And so there there is a call to repentance here, tr- mm-hmm. a true repentance, to turn from false belief and to embrace Jesus. You got any last things before we wrap this up? I know there's a million more there things is. we could say. yeah. I'm thinking maybe next episode start with just a few loose ends, if you don't mind. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, but I just got Philippians 3 ready whenever you're ready to close out. Well, then I'll read paragraph 1 from the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, and then you can read Philippians 3, okay. and we will be done. Okay. Those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, not imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing Christ's active obedience under the whole law and passive obedience in his death for their whole and sole righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is a gift of God. Hit it. Okay, here's the Apostle Paul. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Amen. Next week is Romans 7 to 16. Overcome evil with good. We'll see you then.